page 1135, if you have the church Bible. We're going to look at Romans 8, verses 29 and 30. Now, I'm a wee bit nervous about this because uh, 37 years ago, I can hardly believe this, I went to my church, Morningside Baptist Church up in, in, Ed- in Edinburgh, and I sat and I listened to a sermon that changed my life um, that's ended up me being here. That sermon changed my life because the minister read from this passage, and during the course of his sermon, which uh, the words, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, he talked about predestination, and he said, God predestines us to heaven, and the devil predestines us to hell, and we have the choice. And I looked and I thought, I like that, but that's not what it says. And so I was really confused. And I went away and looked at what the Bible said and decided that what he'd said was wrong. So I went to see him, as you should do. Uh, Please feel free to come and see me after this service at some point. Just not on Sunday evening, that's all I'm saying. And uh, uh, he basically said, this isn't the church for you, David. You should probably go to the free church. So I did. And that was 37 uh, years ago. I, I didn't know what all the arguments were, but here was a teaching in Scripture, and I was a Christian, and I was committed to Scripture. And we're going to look at, at this passage. It is, in some ways, very controversial. There'll be a lot of, uh, of questions, I think, that people may have. Um, it's something that many Christians find quite incomprehensible, and if you're not a Christian, you're here Uh, You you may wonder what all this is about, and hopefully I'll explain as we go on. But surely what we want to do is see what Scripture says, because what Scripture says, God says. There was a service on the radio this morning where the bishop stood up and said, we are more enlightened now than the Bible. No, we're not. We're not. This is the Word of God, and we stick by it. And we need to have humility when... I first understood this teaching, it, uh, it, it really, or got hold of it, not necessarily understood it, it really changed my life. In fact, in, in charismatic terms, I got the second blessing, uh, and it, it, it really has just helped me enormously, and I hope it will be helpful to you. That's the purpose. This is God's Word to help you, um, not to cause controversy, because the whole purpose of Romans 8 is to assure the Christian, to give us assurance, not of ourselves, but assurance of God, His goodness, and power. Because the Romans were in a situation where they were struggling. They were being persecuted. They were discouraged. And I think many of us in today's society, uh, we may feel that. I was speaking to the Gideons yesterday, and the Gideons uh, tend to be older people. They do a wonderful work. And many of them were, were wondering what's going on in the culture, what's going on in society, and what's going on within the church. And there are many things. So, this is a poster we walked past, come back from church. Dear bigots, you can't spread your religious hate here. End of sermon. And the sad thing about that poster is it's Police Scotland and the Scottish Government that have sponsored it. Now, it's, it's it, I've, well, what can you say? It associates bigotry with religion, not just religion, sermons. It's done in a particular font. That a lot of old Christian publications use. It's a very clear message that um, religious people generally are bigots unless they agree with us, and then, of course, they're not bigots, but uh, they're not welcome here. 
not welcome in Scotland. And we are rapidly getting into this situation where to be a Christian who believes the Bible, um, there are plenty of people who say they're Christians who don't believe the Bible. If you're the bishop who says we are, modern society is more enlightened than the Bible, then you're going to do fine in this society. But for the rest of us, it's sometimes going to be quite difficult. So this is a passage that we're looking at. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. That's what we saw last week, who've been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Earlier in Romans 8, Paul has been telling the Romans that they're struggling and groaning in the world. We know that. We've saw that even recently with the earthquake in Indonesia. And they're struggling and groaning within us. We know that. We know there are people in our own fellowship who are struggling and groaning with different things. And you may be here today and you're struggling and groaning with different things. When you think of assurance, you think of maybe the old hymn, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine, oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. And you don't feel like that because you're struggling with so many different things. But Paul has just gone on to tell them, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, that God works all things for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Well, what's his purpose? He now tells us that purpose is to be conformed to the image of his son, to become like Jesus. All human beings have God's image upon them because we're created in the image of God, but that has been perverted and distorted. Now we're being told that God's intention is to recreate, if you like, and to be restored into something better, to have the image of God's Son upon us. And Paul tells us that's God's purpose, and then he then gives us five things, what some people have called the golden chain, five things whereby God does it. This is how God does it. He, he foreknows, he predestines, he calls, he justifies, he glorifies. Okay, so we'll look at each of those and see what they mean. And let's begin with the foreknowledge. <clears throat> Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, Jeremiah says. Before you were born, or the Lord says to Jeremiah, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. So what's this foreknowledge? It means to know something ahead of time. I don't know if you've, um, is it the, the magician Darren Brown does this trick, supposedly, whereby he forecasts the lottery. The only trouble is he does it after the lottery has been drawn. And people say, well, how do you do that? Well, I can do that. Um, it, you know, it would be if he could forecast the lottery before it was drawn, that would be one thing. But to know something ahead of time. But what Paul says here is not just to know something ahead of time, but what he says is deeply rooted in the Old Testament. And this is why you, you, you do need to know, always read the Bible through the Bible. And there are numerous times that this idea is used. It's used always of personal relationship. So in Genesis 18, 19, we read, God says of Abraham, I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is just and right. 
so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, says God. He didn't say, I knew I was going to do this and I knew about you, but I knew you. In the rest of the New Testament, the word is used in a similar way. In Romans 11.2, we read, God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Acts 2.33, this man was handed over to you, talking about Jesus, by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Or in Peter, 1 Peter 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect, exile scattered through the province of Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Now, foreknowledge clearly means God knows what's going to happen. And a lot of people want to leave it at that. They want to say, God knows who's going to believe, and therefore because God knows they're going to believe, God then predestines them. But here's the problem. If that is the case, then salvation depends ultimately on us. God chooses us because of something that we are going to do. But that is the antithesis of what Paul is saying. That's the very opposite of what Paul is saying. We are saved by grace alone. We're not saved because God looked and said, well, you know, David Robertson, I know when he grows up, he's, he's, he's going to have such a good heart. He's going to love me and he's going to follow me. But Joe Bloggs, they're not going to. So I'm going to choose David Robertson because he's going to choose me. That's not what the Bible says. It seems neat, but that's not what it says. Foreknowledge in this case means love. Foreknowledge is God's sovereign distinguishing love. So in Deuteronomy 7, 7, the Lord did not set his affection on you, he's saying to Israel, and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples. <clears throat> For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought with you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the lion. The, the idea of knowledge carries this idea of love, not knowledge about, but love of. So Jesus in Matthew 7 says this, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. What do you mean Jesus didn't know them? He knew who they were. He knew what they were doing. How did Jesus not know them? What Jesus is saying is, I never loved you. I never knew you like that. You were not my people. You didn't know me, and I didn't know you. Probably the most difficult words in the whole of Scripture. But foreknowledge is what Paul is saying here, those God loved, Ephesians 1. In love, he chose us before the creation of the world. And that leads to something else. It leads on to predestination. What is predestination? It's a word that, that causes so much trouble and, and difficulty. It just simply means to decide beforehand, as in Acts 4.28. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. I found, when you, I found looking at the origin of the word um, 
pro horizio. The, the pro is the is pre before. Horizio is the horizon. And I think that helps us because you can see the horizon. You can look out and you can see, you, you look out at the sea and you, you can see the end of the horizon, but you don't know what's beyond the horizon. There's a sense in which you and I in our lives, we can see some things that are coming. I hope for most of you, you, you see that there's food coming after um, this service. You, you have your Sunday lunch or whatever. You can see certain things. You've got things planned in the week and then maybe a month ahead and a year ahead. But you look, you, you look into your future and how many of these things are certain? How many of them are guaranteed? And, and, and in reality, most of us just do not know what's coming around the corner. We have very, very limited sight. Well, God knows. God is outside of time and God knows. But it's not just that he knows but that he appoints to a specific destiny. The destiny here is that his people would become like Christ. So what is being said here is that God loves, because that's the, the foreknowledge part. It's interesting that all the controversy comes around the predestination part, but the predestination part's simple once you get the foreknowledge part. But God loves and then predestines, chooses, that's what it says. And a lot of us, a lot of Christians back off and say, no, 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 that can't be right. But there's a wonderful little book by J.I. Packer called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. And it's just, again, helped me so much in, in seeking to communicate the, the gospel. He says, in, in part of that book, he says this, in the first place, you give God thanks for your conversion. Why do you do that? Why do you thank God for your conversion? Because you know in your heart that God is entirely responsible for it. <clears throat> you did not save yourself. He saved you. You didn't save yourself. He saved you. There's a second way in which you acknowledge that God is sovereign in salvation. You pray for the conversion of others. You ask God to work in them everything necessary for their salvation. So our thanksgiving and our intercessions prove that we believe in divine sovereignty. On our feet we may have arguments about it, but on our knees we are all agreed. See, here's an astonishing thing that the Scripture actually says. We are dead in sins and trespasses. We cannot save ourselves. We need God to save us. And that, by the way, is what's wrong sometimes, I think, with so much evangelism, where Christians think that we can, we can bully, we can persuade, we can um, emotionally manipulate people so that they will sign up for the Christian faith. But we don't do that because we know that people are dead in sins and trespasses, and it's only the Holy Spirit who can change people. Now, uh, John Stott <coughs> has, deals with five different objections to that, and I do want to mention them. Um, if you believe that God chooses people and then you think, I'm a Christian, and then you're saying God has chosen me, doesn't that sound incredibly arrogant? Don't you sound a little bit like Josie Mourinho? I am the chosen one. Uh, doesn't it give you a you know, a superiority complex? Not at all. It should be the very opposite. In fact, I would suggest this. If your message to people is, I was once a horrible person and then I chose to follow Jesus Christ and now I'm a wonderful person, you should become like me. That's a little bit arrogant. Whereas if you're saying to people, listen, I'm just like you, but I've got this wonderful news to tell you about Jesus Christ. It shouldn't make us arrogant. It should be the opposite. 
Some people say it makes us uncertain so that you're, you're kind of wandering around. And, and this has happened, though I think wrongly, where there's been such an emphasis on predestination and such a wrong teaching about it that people who are believers are going, well, I wonder if I'm predestined or not. And they, they really worry about it. Well, I, I, I don't... I kind of understand that, but I also don't understand it, purely and simply for this. There isn't a single unbeliever who's concerned about their salvation. Believers are concerned. If you believe in heaven and hell, if you believe in God and you believe in Jesus and you believe what the Bible says, then yes, you'll have a lot of questions and maybe a lot of fears and a lot of doubts, but you don't believe it. Why would you care? Martin Luther says this, predestination is a wonderfully sweet thing for those who have the Spirit. I don't think it, it should make us uncertain unless we have the wrong idea. If the wrong idea is God's going to choose me because of the good I do or because of the nice person I am, and then you see that you're not that good, and, not, then, and then of course you're going to be really uncertain. It fosters apathy, and Stott answers that in this way. No, it doesn't, because <clears throat> our responsibility is still to believe. Why do people not come to Jesus? Is it because they cannot or they will not? It's both. Why should we bother with evangelism? Not because we're, we're, we think if it's entirely dependent upon us. I remember I was very, I've always been interested in telling people about Jesus, but before I had this particular understanding and experience, I was going around the University of Edinburgh like a headless chicken or a demented rabbit or any other animal analogy you like, trying to convert people, trying to persuade them. And it just never, ever worked. And, and the reason it didn't work was because I was doing it all in my own strength. And when I came to understand that God was sovereign, it didn't make me sit back and go, oh, that's okay, I can fold my arms and just sit back because... God's going to save who God's going to save. It did the opposite. It stopped me running around like a headless chicken, and it made me realize that God was going to use his word, that God was sovereign, that God had placed me in a particular place, that the people I was speaking to were divine appointments, that I didn't have to manipulate things, that I didn't have to see the deal through, that I didn't have to get people to sign up, that God was going to use his word whenever it was proclaimed. And rather than foster apathy, it provided enormous encouragement. I have many people yet in this city, Paul is told. And he, he, they weren't talking about people who were believers. He was talking about people who were going to become believers. God's saying, you go ahead, because I'm going to bless your work. And notice what's said in this passage, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. When we hear the words like elect or predestined, we think this, this really, really small select group. Let me tell you this. God is going to save a number that no one can count. In fact, traditionally in Scotland, those who believe this, you know what they believed? They believed that a time was coming when no one would need to say to no to their neighbor, know the Lord, because all would know him. I found it rather bizarre that, we, that we've got so many Christians say, well, I have to go and convert people. I have, we have to go and do this, or else it's all doomed. And there's not that many people becoming Christians because of it. But if you have a confidence that God is a work, that God is going to bless, that the Lord's purpose is, is to save a great multitude, then no matter what's going on in the culture around you, you know that God is going to do it. You know that, the, you know 
that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. A great number. It really does encourage you. Um, I remember hearing uh, a missionary to China talk about this. And this kind of made sense to me. I don't know if it makes sense to you, but it made enormous sense to me. He said he was really struggling trying to communicate the gospel because he was working particularly amongst Chinese prostitutes. And they just weren't getting anything. Until one day, he just happened to be going through Romans, and he he mentioned this. And he thought, oh, they'll really struggle with this one. But actually, it was the teaching about predestination that caused them to be interested. Why? Because they thought, if we have to do this, we can. We're scum. But then they realized God could do it. And that really changed their whole attitude. Sometimes people argue predestination makes people complacent. And so you'll get people who, you know, you know the phrase, um, the frozen chosen, meant to be us really, you know, Scottish Calvinistic Presbyterians, the frozen chosen and so on. Um, do you know in a strange kind of way, if anyone should clap their hands or raise their arms, it should be us. Because we should have absolute confidence in the goodness and sovereignty and power of God. It doesn't make us complacent. No more so than, imagine um, a young guy or a young woman who's, you know, really, really keen to have a relationship, inverted commas. And then one day, you know, they have that magic moment, which doesn't always occur, but their eyes meet across the room and a guy goes out and he's like totally smitten. Does that mean after he's totally smitten and he's in love, and by the way, discovers that she's in love with him, and I mean, he's, he's floating everywhere. Well, does that mean that he says, I can't be bothered anymore. I'm not going to talk to her. I'm not going to go out. I'm not going to care for her. It's the very opposite. He's going to do even more. If we know that God has worked in our life and God has chosen us, it doesn't make us complacent. It's the very opposite. Some people say that it fosters narrow-mindedness that people become very self-absorbed. But actually, all human beings are self-absorbed. I'm self-absorbed. You're self-absorbed. But knowing that God has chosen you not because of any good in you, but just purely and simply because he loves, and he loved you, you realize that you're chosen to be conformed to Christ. And that means to be a blessing to other people. And so instead of narrow-mindedness, it should make you more open-minded. Maybe just one other objection People don't like the idea of what's called double predestination. What Robbie Burns caricatured as aim for heaven, ten for hell. That's not what this teaches. This does not teach double predestination. For those of you who are into theology, you read the Westminster Confession. It, it talks about um, foreordination and, and predestination in a different way. Here is where we're at. We're all lost. We're all by our own nature and desire heading for hell in rebellion against God. God's not saying, right, okay, them, I'm sending them to hell. No, I'm choosing them for heaven. Uh, you know, it's, that's not what this is teaching. What this is teaching is all humanity is lost. And then God determines to save some, a great number. Now, I'm not saying there are not any difficulties with that. But I will say this. God is righteous. He will do no sin or iniquity. He will do nothing unjust or unloving. The judge of all the earth will do right. 
And it is this judge who tells us that this is what he does. So God loves in advance. He knows in advance. He, he chooses. And, and we'll, we'll look at uh, how he does that in a moment. But I want to sing uh, some of I want to sing these verses, actually, before we go on to look at that. So, Fraser, if you could put up um, the words of the paraphrase of this passage, we'll sing the three verses of that. We know that God works all things, and the band will come up and lead us in that, together for the good of all the ones who love him, called by the will of God. So that's two parts of the chain. We've got three parts to come. It'll be a bit shorter uh, in, in the second half of the sermon. Let's stand and sing this, though. So let's look at this, the, the bits before the calling, the, these five things. There's the foreknowledge and the predestination, and then there's the calling and the two things that come uh, afterwards. Those he predestined, he also called. Now, what's, what's this calling? God has chosen that evangelism, the preaching of the gospel, is the means that he uses. It's, it's what we call God's effectual call, because if the gospel does not come with the power of the Holy Spirit, we would not believe. By nature, we are dead in sins and trespasses, and 
You know this, dead people can do nothing. By nature, we all come short of the glory of God and we are his enemies. Paul's already explained that in chapter 3. He tells us in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 4, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. In Ephesians 2, Paul talks about us being quickened. You has he quickened. You, you were dead in your sins and trespasses, and he quickened you. He brought you to life. He resurrected you spiritually. I think one of my favorite stories of that, there are dramatic stories of that, and, and I love these, but also there are stories of just a gradual uh, awakening, sometimes almost imperceptible but one of my favorite stories is a preacher called Billy Bray who was preaching in his church in Cornwall and as he preached a sermon, he realized that he wasn't a Christian and he, re- he was converted through his own sermon. Uh, and, and somebody in the congregation saw it who was a godly person and stood up and shouted out, Hallelujah, the preacher's been converted. So <laughs> you, could, you could try that one. <laughs> but I mean, there's just something, there's just, there's a, there's a calling, it comes with power. Because here's the amazing thing. The amazing thing is not that people don't believe. The amazing thing is that any do believe. It's amazing grace that causes you to believe. Now, it's really important to understand this. Effectual calling is not God forcing the will. It's not God dragging us in opposed to our will. It's the Holy Spirit working within us, enabling us to appreciate the truth, to see the beauty of Christ, and to come to Christ. And we then will to come to him. See, the trouble is the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they do not see the glory and the beauty of Jesus. And when the word is preached with power and when the spirit is present, then when people see, they will to come to him. No one can come to me, says Jesus, unless the father who sent me draws them. That's what God does. He draws. He woos. He shows us the beauty of Christ. He shows us our own sin. Acts 13, 48, as many were ordained to eternal life, believed. Lydia in Philippi, she's at a prayer meeting. What a great place to be converted. She's at a prayer meeting and she's hearing Paul. And the Lord opened her heart to receive what Paul was saying. That's why we pray. That's why you pray in the prayer meeting before the service. That's why you pray during the service. That's why you pray if you're ever seeking to communicate and spread the good news, because whatever technique you have, whatever message you have, whatever things that you use, unless God opens people's hearts, you are speaking in vain. God calls, and then he justifies. And again, Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. I'm not going to say a great deal about that. You can go back and listen to the the sermons on uh, chapters 3, 4, and 5, which talk about justification. Just want to reinforce one or two things. Justification just simply means being made right with God. It means to be declared righteous. It means the opposite of condemnation. That's why at the beginning of chapter 8, he says, therefore, there's now no condemnation because you've been justified. You've been made right with God. You've been declared righteous. But this is really important. It doesn't just mean you've been forgiven of all the bad things that you've done. It means 
also that you are entirely guiltless as if you had never sinned at all. You are put into an entirely new relationship with God. And here's what Paul is saying here. He's telling the Roman Christians to be confident and to have assurance because this is the declaration of God and it cannot be changed. I'll give you a trivial example of this. Um, I, I love this story. I just thought it was beautiful. Um, I love the kids in this church. And I, obviously, sometimes I go a wee bit over the top. And there was one wee girl I went a wee bit over the top with, I think, because she went home and her, her mum told me this the following week, that she was getting a row. And basically, not being told what a horrible person she was, but how bad she'd been. And the girl rather defiantly looked at her mother and said, well, I'm beautiful. And the mother said, what? Where, where, where did that come from? Uh, David said that I'm beautiful, and he's a minister, and he can't lie. So, <laughs> well, <laughs> that's, that's a lovely trust, um, and long may it continue. But of course, I can lie, and I can get things wrong, and I'm human in that sense. But listen to this. If God says you're forgiven, you're forgiven. If God says you're justified, you're justified. The devil will come and accuse. It doesn't matter. God says, I'm justified. The devil says you're condemned. God says, I'm justified. Your heart says that you are condemned. God is greater than your heart. And he says, you are justified. And notice that it is, it is a definite it is a certain thing. It is a once-for-all thing. It cannot be annulled. It can't, you, you can't be justified and then not justified. You can't lose it. And that's what Paul is trying to reassure them of here. And he'll go on that marvelous passage that lots of people like to quote from uh, verse 31 about what's going to separate us from, from the love of God. And they like to quote that, but they don't accept what goes before. But it's what goes before... That's what it's based on. God has justified you. And because of that, he, he gives this amazing expression. He says, he also glorified. Now, verse 17 earlier had spoken of God's glory. We share, we also may share in his glory. And we saw when we looked at that, that that's talking about having a perfect body, a glorified body in a glorified world and being without sin. But that's future. So why does Paul say here he's glorified us? We don't experience that just now. Well, there's a man called James Denny, a theologian. He says this, The tense of this is amazing. It is the most daring anticipation of faith that the New Testament contains. In other words, what Paul is saying here is because God has loved you, foreknown you, predestined you, called you, justified you, you're glorified. You can't, you can't not be glorified. It is absolutely guaranteed. It is absolutely certain. You cannot lose your salvation. That's why, by the way, why I think sanctification, being made holy, isn't mentioned here because it's presumed. It's presumed that it's part of that justification and part of being glorified and so on. But it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful assurance and it's a wonderful promise well, how do we know? How can we be sure? How can, how can we have that assurance? And here's where I want to come to those of you who are not yet Christians or those of you who are not sure, those of you who have lots of doubts and a lot of fears. 
You don't seek for the assurance. You never seek for the assurance. You seek for Christ. That's all the time. You know, it's a bit like somebody who's really, really keen to get married and they're desperately seeking for love. Don't desperately seek for love. You, you have the person. And here, I would just simply ask you, do you acknowledge your sin? Do you accept who Jesus is? Do you acknowledge him as Lord and Savior? Do you know that God has brought you to this place at this time? Because this for me is always, always the exciting thing. We don't manipulate. We don't twist. We don't know people's hearts. We can't say. You know, it must be awful to be a human who thinks you're omniscient, who thinks you know everything. The sad, sad mess that's been the American Senate hearing, if you've been following it, with Judge Brett Kavanaugh. You've got these human beings who are saying, we know he was guilty. And you've got other humans saying, we know he's not guilty. No, they don't. They just do it on the basis of their emotion or their politics. Nobody knows except those directly involved. But, oh, we know, we know, we know. No, we don't. We don't know. There's so many things that we do not know. But I'll tell you this. I know that God has set you where you are living. I know that God has placed you because God says it. And I know that everyone who comes here it is because God has brought you, no matter the reason that you think that you came. And I know that God has called us to proclaim his word in this city because he has many people yet in this city. Our responsibility, if we're not believers, is not to work out predestination. Our responsibility is to come to Jesus. And those of us who have come to Jesus, we're maybe like the people in Rome. Maybe we are demoralized. Maybe we are battered and bruised. Maybe we do think there are unconquerable spiritual forces against us. Maybe we are conscious of the darkness that's in the world. But Paul is saying that because of Christ, our salvation is guaranteed. We cannot be defeated. We are more than conquerors. We don't need to work up a victory. It's there. It's done. It's, it's a done deal. We, we need to be encouraged by this. That's the point of this teaching. The point of this teaching is, is not to send us away with philosophical questions bursting out of our heads and lots of doubts and fears. It's simply to say this. I am a child of God. I am redeemed. I am chosen. I am accepted by grace. By grace I've been redeemed. By grace. Nothing else. So when the devil comes to you and says, but you did this, and what about your sin? And you didn't realize how rotten your heart was. You can turn around and say, yeah, but God knew. God knew me beforehand, and God knew before he chose me, and God didn't choose me because I'm good. God chose me because he loved me, and nothing that you can say can prevent that or can stop it. That's why Leon Morris says, we should be encouraged by this to a much more active and living faith. It is God's plan that his people should become like his son, not that they should muddle along in a modest respectability. God forgive the church in this country, so middle class, so respectable, so refined, so concerned. And we forget that God so loved us that when we were in our sin, dead in sins and trespasses, when we were his enemies, he ordained to send his son, his beautiful son, to die for us. And we say, oh, we're not sure. Oh, we don't know. Oh, we can't do this. Oh, we can't say that. Morris is right. God's plan is that his people should become like his son, 
not that they should muddle along in a modest respectability. Just think of Paul, that passage you read. I mean, God spoke to him, blinded him, sends him into Damascus, is healed. He goes into the synagogues. He teaches about Jesus. They're going, this is insane. This man came to kill these people. And now, and he proved that Jesus was the Christ. And you would think, well, if he proved it, they would just accept it. Give me proof, I'll believe in God. No, they tried to kill him. And so Paul has to leave in a basket, lowered down the wall. He goes to Jerusalem, and he does the same thing. He boldly preaches Jesus Christ, and they try to kill him. And he just carries on the whole of his life, preaching Jesus Christ. Why? Because he believed this. He believed that God had called him. He believed that God had chosen him, and he believed that God would work through him. He didn't hide away. Now, this should all humble us. God is sovereign, and he can do what he will with his own. God is wise. He is the only one who can make all things work together for the good of those who love him. Stop, stop condemning God on the basis of your own understanding. Stop blaming God for things that you cannot and do not know, and instead trust him absolutely. I love what John Owen says about this. He says, we walk in a shade and know nothing of what is set before us. The day will come when we shall see one thing set against another and infinite wisdom shining out in them all. Why did God allow me to be ill? Why did God allow that person to die? Why did God allow this split in the church? Why did God, why do my children not believe? Why this? Why that? And we would go crazy with grief and anger and sorrow and despair and, and discouragement if we, if we tried to think through everything. And so what we then have to do is we have to rely on the sovereignty of God and say one day we will see infinite wisdom shining out in it all. Infinite wisdom shining out in it all. This has been called the golden chain, the five things, foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, glorification. This is not a chain that binds you. This is a chain that sets you free. This doesn't tie us down to guilt and doubt and fear. This sets us free. My chains fell off. My heart was free. Why? Because God chose me and God loved me. The Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If you know that and you feel that, And you're aware of that. Do you know everything that happens to you this coming week, every fear you have in your heart just now, every discouragement, every depression, you set that against the background of a sovereign God sending his son who loved you and gave himself for you. It changes the whole picture. It changes everything. I feel immensely sorry for Christians who do not accept the sovereignty of God in this, as it's taught here because I think they're missing out on the greatest assurance of all. And I would encourage those of you who are Christians. I'm not saying in order to be a Christian, you need to believe in predestination. You don't. But I'm telling you that if you want real assurance, you need to believe this about God, that he is good. To me, I'm, I'm so, so, so thankful for this. Because if I didn't believe this, I would be chained down by so many other things. 
And I would encourage you to think in this way. God's purpose will not be defeated. God's amazing grace will work out its plan. And let me tell you this. Some of us have got a very small view of what God will do. We shouldn't. God can convert this. Who knows what God has in mind for this city? Who knows what God has in mind for this country? Who knows what God has in mind for the world? I'll leave you with one example, just not a small one. I think a great one. The uh, church in China, our brother and sisters in China, Xi Jinping has started a new campaign of persecution against the church. And a lot of the younger Christians are very, very concerned. But the older ones, and I mean real older ones, they remember what happened with Mao Zedong. And they remember when all the European missionaries were thrown out of China after Mao Zedong came to power. And there were possibly half a million Christians in the whole of China. And we in the West all thought, the poor Chinese, what could they do without us? And when we got back in, when missionaries were allowed back in, what did they discover? They discovered the Holy Spirit did very well without us. Maybe up to 100 million Christians now in China. God doesn't need us, but he uses us. That's why we should be confident. God's chosen you. He's chosen you as a Christian to be where you are, to do what you're doing, to serve him and to glorify him. And you can't fail. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you are sovereign. Thank you that you love and that our salvation stems from your love, your love for us, not our love for you. Thank you that we love you because you first loved us. Thank you for your calling. So many of us here can testify that you called us, you've worked in our lives, you've shown us Christ. The light of the Spirit has shone in our hearts. Thank you for your amazing grace. And thank you for bringing people here who don't know you, that you have brought them here to hear your word, to draw them to yourself and grant that each would come. And Lord, thank you that as we go out this coming week, whatever lies before us, we know that underneath are the everlasting arms. In your name, amen. Let's sing. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Let's stand and sing this to God's praise.